Up next on episode 82 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with Mac developer Daniel Chalka to discuss Mac development and the new iPad from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Well, I think I talked to you about this, Joel. You don't really see children until you have one. I swear it's true. Like, you just don't see them. But then when you have one, they're everywhere. You see them everywhere. You hear them. You hear phantom child crying. It's crazy. It's like they're visible to you in a way that they never were before. Jeff, you don't see children because you sit in your room all day long. I mean, well, I do occasionally go out into the world. I'm forced <laughs> by forces against my will to leave the house. And uh, occasionally, uh, it's just amazing. The things you don't see. You know, I guess it's true of so many things in life. But yeah, yeah it's true. And they always, they always want to talk to you now, now that they can smell like the friendly to children on, on you, right? They're, yes. I don't know if that happens yes. To and you. children are much less scary now because they're so scary. Yeah. It's like, wow, I don't so, know anything about well, that. Yeah. And, you learned, you learned the children like interface. So now it's like you, you've got a few tricks up your sleeve that you can. You can play on them. And, uh, does the same yeah. thing apply to puppies? I bet it does, because I'm not very good with puppies. And uh, Most I people bet if- are less afraid of dogs. I think dogs are less intimidating, because children grow up to be people. People are pretty scary. That's right. <laughs> uh, dogs, I think, less scary, unless you just have a thing against dogs, where you don't like barky, you're afraid of dogs in general. But I would say no, it's a totally different thing. Like 1% of them are sociopaths. <laughs> Babies, I mean. But Daniel, I wanted to mention that... that in, in terms of being parents, my final advice to everyone, that, that first four months is horrible, <laughs> really bad. Uh, but I, re- I like it now. Like once I got out of that dark four-month period after the birth, uh, it just gets better and better and better. And I, I really enjoy it now. But man, there was that first four months I was questioning everything. I was like, how did the human race even ever propagate? I was like, this should never have happened. It really is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really, a miracle we're it, even here. <laughs> I, I like to acknowledge to all of my friends who are having kids just how miserable it can be so that they won't. Like walking in. Oh, no, no, no. Can be. It will be. I mean, I just tell people straight up, like, it's going to be one of, it's going to be like hazing. Like you're entering some kind of crazy (laughs) fraternity and they're going to do everything they can to make you quit. (laughs) It's true. But you just have to push through and it gets really good. Once you become, you know, a brother in the fraternity of humanity, then it's all good. Just you have to get past that hazing period. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, enough about that. So, Joel, are we going to introduce our guest? Our guest today is Daniel Jalcut, Macintosh developer extraordinaire, and he's here to tell us about development for the iPod, Pat, Pood, Pud, Pud. IP Star D. IP Star D. That's right. Now, Daniel, you, you have a relationship with Fug Creek? I was looking on your, uh, your website, looking up, uh, you have a working relationship with a world-class client. I'm not yeah, sure we, had a, we had a one-week stand. Was it just Fog, a one-week, really? Fog Creek and I, like yeah. Years. I know it was a it was a very it was a very um, interesting. Uh, what what happened? Uh, the history of that is I flew into New York for one week uh, back when Joel was looking at. Uh, this was before the days of uh, co-pilots, you know, omnipresence on uh, Mac and PC. It was just uh, I think it was public already, but it was just PC. It was PC only. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I think at that time, uh, Fog Creek didn't have anybody with significant. Mac development experience, so I just came in for kind of like a, a, a one week test round to see see what we could get done and uh, and uh, you know after I think after I left it with you guys uh, one of your one of your developers I think one of the one of the original copilot interns yeah took over he took over the yeah, Mac development. he got interested in the Mac so he just he needed somebody to get into the Mac and then uh, yeah and as I remember we couldn't persuade you to move to New York. Yeah. It well, time. it's ironic now because I'm, you know, I am uh, totally itching to move to New York now. And uh, <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I think I think I told you at the time that I was uh, that I was. It's uh, only a interested. matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we're uh, still you, hiring. You might have to do sales, but uh, we are definitely hiring. 
<laughs> you don't need somebody to run your podcast console? Um, I got that pretty much under control. Oh, shit. Okay. Sure, yes, we do actually, as it turns out, need somebody to run the podcast console. <laughs> so just to be clear, this is being recorded, right, Joel? We're, we're good on that. <laughs> just checking. I think so. The thing I wrote down that it said that we had done 9 minutes and 50 seconds, and now it says that we've done 12 minutes and, and 4 seconds, so that's more. So I think we are recording. You know, I really miss the days of big, gigantic, turning tape reels where you could just look at it and you'd be like, yep, that is going on the tape. We've got it even – I do a little podcast with a friend, another Mac developer, a friend of mine, and we've got it worse in a way because we do the, the double-ender technique, which uh, yeah. you know, just means you have two points of failure. And uh, we have had one episode where we went the whole you know, 30, 45 minutes only to realize that my disk space had run out. And so he had a perfectly good one-sided So did you do a one-sided conversation podcast with just like the long – <laughs> no, no, we scrapped it. We scrapped it, but it's uh, we haven't, um, we haven't, you know. I guess we we took the 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 idea that you could get a cleaner recording with the double ender. And yeah, just, it's not really true. Skype is pretty freaking good. Yeah, we we probably need to look into it because we'd like to do the the kind of three way, uh, you know, guests and stuff like that, and that gets a lot yeah. harder when you impose self recording on them. Right, right. You can't do three way guests. Without a without a mixer and two computers, because you can't just let Skype conference you, mm-hmm. um, because it will uh, it will it, it, it does the half duplex thing that's annoying where people are cutting each other off. The only way to solve that was to have a mixer, two separate right. computers. It's a long story. You can have let's this look. equipment. I'm sick of this whole podcast. Thing. Yeah, come yeah, down yeah. No, let's let's not let's not talk about podcasting. <laughs> so, no, no. Daniel, let's talk about. what I want to have do. an iPod episode. We haven't had an iPod episode yet, and the iPad's already been out for six six days. Well, yeah, we we're definitely gonna get to the iPad. I've I had a lot of thoughts on the iPad. iPad, that, right? iPad that I wanted to share. But Daniel, so you run Red Sweater Software, and you've run Red Sweater Software since when? Oh, when well, technically, start? technically, uh, since you know, I went down to San Francisco City Hall and filed papers for it in I think 1999. Oh wow! But it was sort of um, it was sort of a side fantasy business at that time because I was working at Apple still. So uh, I ended up working at Apple from around 95 to 2002, and um, I actually quit Apple with the um, career limiting decision of going back to school for a music degree, and. Uh, <laughs> That uh, that was fun. It was good t- good time, and it you know it it um, it was kind of interesting in that it it didn't limit my career in the sense that I was uh, encouraged to get started with consulting and stuff while I was in school and on summer breaks and all that. So uh, when I was done with that music degree, I I sort of realized I had this red sweater thing that was was uh, at that time doing consulting and stuff like that. That's how I ended up getting hooked up with Fog Creek. Um, but then over the over the past few years, I have migrated away from consulting and I'm just doing uh, application development, selling stuff over the web, uh, looking at the iP- uh, iPad now. Uh, I got I've got like iPhone apps in, uh, you know, that miserable, like 70 percent complete phase. I've got like you know, two or three of them like that. But I think the iPad might finally sort of uh, motivate me to. Well, looking at your product page, it does seem like the iPad would be a better fit for someone because you have Mars Edit, which is a blog publishing software. Yep. Uh, this is all for OS X, right? This is Mac software, obviously. Yeah. Uh, a crossword puzzle app, which my wife is obsessed with crossword puzzles. So that's always fun. And then some other stuff, FlexTime, Fast Grips, and Clarion, which is a music app. I'm guessing that relates to your music education. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple little little drill application. But you're you're right, the the two big apps there, Mars Edit and uh, Black Ink, they're they're sort of like uh, they're a little bit of a stretch for the iPhone because of uh, screen real estate and stuff like that. Right. But with the iPad, it's just uh, uh, it's just nuts because you know, like a crossword app on the iPad is it's like it's kind of like a, a canonical it's a real, use for, yeah, for exactly a pad, right. <laughs> So, um, you know, there's already some cool stuff with the iPhone. You think of a crossword app. I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued already because you think like sitting at your, your desk, you're solving your crossword puzzles and, uh, you, you got to go grab your coffee, go to work. So you just sink and you run out the door and you're sitting on the subway solving the same crossword puzzle. Uh, you haven't finished it at the end of the day, come home, 
sync it up again. Uh, that's cool, but that's just like kind of infuriating that, that's, uh, you know. Well, you can also hook up a keyboard to the, that's actually a supported thing. That's not even supported on the iPhone, is it? I mean, you literally cannot hook up a keyboard to the yeah, iPhone. Yeah, that's, that's definitely new and exciting. It really surprised a lot of people, I think, because it feels like, um, it feels like one of those compromises that Apple wouldn't make, you know, like one of those things that people would be screaming for and Apple would say, you don't need a keyboard, you've got a touch screen. Right, but, now, you've been a Mac developer for a very long time then, since, gosh, 99 then. So you've seen this whole evolution of, of sort of developing for, for OS X and, and the iPod and now the iPad. I mean, what's your perception of the evolution? Because I have a little bit, although I totally respect what Apple's doing here, I'm actually kind of bullish on the iPad, although I have some reservations I'll get into later. Uh, I love what they're doing in general. I think they're really innovating and, and pushing forward in, in a way that only really Apple could. But on the, the downside, like I do not think Apple is a good developer support company like i don't <laughs> i feel like their tools are a little bit subpar it's kind of like going back in time with objective c a little bit it's not really a great developer friendly the products are great don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but i get a little frustrated with the development stack like i think they could do so much more that's just not the strength of apple as a company is to support developers they do it but i don't know it's just not the same but what's your perception of the evolution like how much better has it gotten starting from 99 it's been 10 years well, um, so just to clarify, actually, I, I was developing since like 95, but on Mac OS 9 before uh, OS 10, and mostly within Apple and working on the system stuff. So I've, I have seen, a, a, you know, the development. I, I was using, uh, you know, MPW. Some of your listeners, I'm sure, will remember that if they have any old Mac experience. But that was basically like Apple's proprietary, uh, you know, command line worksheet, worksheet interface. Uh, that was our main developer tool back in 1995, and then you know migrated to OS 10. Uh, ironically, you know some things got much worse on OS 10 uh, in the sense that we had to start using like GDB for debugging. And, um, there's some there's definitely some nightmare elements of the of just the tool chain, um, but uh, you know a lot of things have gotten insanely better over the years. In part because Apple's changed its attitude. Has become a little bit more pragmatic about tools. So, for example, um, something I don't, you know, I, I have to preface this with by saying I don't have a lot of modern experience on Windows or in, um, much on, on Unix, but, um, you know, Apple took uh, stuff like Dtrace from Sun. You, know, you guys familiar with that? Uh, it's like a, you know, very low level profiling uh, kind of uh, probe. It's like kernel level, isn't it? Yeah, it lets you, it's just like so generic. It, it lets you inject like, you know, measurement probes into the system at all these different layers. So you can do things like say every time, um, you know, printf is called by any process, I want to run this little script and, you know, record this, hmm. this stuff. Uh, so Apple, um, actually very, you know, open minded says, Hey, Sun has this amazing thing. We're going to take it. We're going to, um, port it to OS 10. We're going to put a fancy uh, UI on it. Now we have this tool on the on the Mac called Instruments, which um, is is like, you know, it, it's like basically having like the fancy auto mechanic, you know, plug-in probe for. Well, that, that's a good point, Daniel, because I think in a larger sense, what Apple's doing is like putting a friendly face on Unix, and that's a vast oversimplification, but it, it's something that they do very, very well. I mean, Apple cares intensely about sort of the experience, and that's not something that Unix side has done well at all. <laughs> so it's sort of sure. very complementary skills. You're taking sort of open source stuff that's, that's, that's sound at its core and getting, you know, people who are hacking on it, building it, making it better, and then you have Apple sort of taking saying, okay, we're going to take this and add a really nice UI and just polish the heck out of the experience and deliver this end-to-end, you know, experience. And I, I think it's a very complementary uh, set of skills. And I think that's why they've, they've done really well uh, with a lot of their strategies. So yeah, it blows, maybe you're right. it blows our minds, those of us who have been around for the long haul. And, you know, Apple used to have its own Unix. It used to have uh, uh, AUX. AUX. Yeah, and uh, it's just... It, we would have never dreamed in a million years that, uh, you know, okay, 1995, in 15 years, um, you know, Apple's going to be completely based on a BSD Unix system. And furthermore, the, um, like one, you know, the most hyped phone, cell phone in the world will be running, you know, 
BSD flavor Unix. Just nuts, right? And and people don't even know how much Unix they're running because Apple has put such a uh, a veneer over it. But um, you know, going back to the developer sort of experience, that's all part of it. It's like uh, we take some we take some you know basically crap from the uh, the legacy, like GD having to use GDB, as I said. But um, you know, in other areas, Apple's innovating with again with like uh, seizing on that Unix stuff. We have a new compiler coming down the the pipe now called uh called uh c uh, lane clang and it's uh it's based on llvm it's basically like a whole new alternative to gcc so um this again apple takes this uh in this in this case they're really sort of spearheading it but they take this awesome technology and now we've got this incredible uh you know um we can we can run um, analysis, so we can run like static analysis on our source code, and have it have it tell us things like, oh, uh, in in case uh, this parameter comes in as you know nil, and then gets compared to this parameter, and, and five lines later it's going to be uh, you know a nil to reference, and uh, I just don't know how much um, I, that stuff. I think like Jeff, from your perspective since you haven't jumped in and you haven't tried it, I think um, it's just, you don't recognize that uh, we're sort of enjoying that stuff over here. Uh, and likewise, as I said, I don't know exactly what I'm missing on windows or on Unix, but um, it's, it's kind of these, these are examples of things just on the tools level that make me go, Oh, okay. Apple's actually taking care of me. Even if they're sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of like uh, capricious with how, uh, how uh, they treat us in terms of, you know, app store approvals or, um, you know, uh, general the general secrecy and privacy and policies that Apple has that seem like they're just sort of. Um, but Daniel, you're still on the OS 10 side. You're not dealing with you. You don't have to. Apple doesn't have to approve every release of Mars Edit or Black Ink that you release. That's I very mean, true. Yeah, but it, as you can probably imagine, especially now with the iPad, we're a lot of people like me were simultaneously totally stoked about it and also wondering how how numbered are our uh, sort of totally free days, right? So that's like the flip side. Uh, Apple, you know, it, if you're like a passionate Mac guy like me, you, you, you appreciate constraints and you appreciate that Apple's helping us work within constraints, but then sometimes you're just, you know, a lot of us take a step back when it comes to the level of control they're trying to impose. Sure. Well, there was that thing that came up with uh, Amazon and Macmillan, and some stuff that came out of that was that Amazon is kind of the bad guy compared to Apple and the whole iBook things, or iBooks, you know, like iTunes is going to have a store for books. Mm -hmm. Apple takes 30%, but it came out that Amazon, because they controlled the distribution chain, was taking like 70%. No, no, that's not, that's not what they were doing, actually. Okay, well, that, I, I must misunderstand. No, but they my, were actually I subsidizing was... books, which is even worse. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's worse. Oh, okay. right. They wanted Macmillan to charge less than Macmillan wanted. They right? wanted the right to charge nine ninety nine for a book that Macmillan wouldn't sell them for less than thirteen, fourteen bucks. Yeah, I didn't pay too close attention to that, uh, so I can't. My, really my point is that Apple Apple entering was actually a positive force because Apple their fixed rate was actually a much better deal. Um, than a lot of stuff Amazon was doing with Kindle because you know I view iPad as not just but it's it's a huge Kindle competitor like I think it has right. potential to actually kill the Kindle thing. well the, the, although I, here's that's just the thing hardware. I mean a Amazon could have played much harder to get and just told the publishers uh, that they can't be on uh, iPad they could have said. Uh if you're on iPad, you, you won't be on the Kindle and you won't be in the bookstore. And and eventually they may have succeeded in, in doing that, but I don't think Amazon quite had the guts to play that hard ball. Well, Kindle app is going to run on iPad too. That's the other thing. I mean, all they care about is selling the license to the book. Right, right. Like, they don't Which, really but care. But the real question is, why, did, why didn't Apple just go to Amazon and say, why don't you make the bookstore for the for the iPad? I think it's. I think that control. I think you're onto something that reveals how sort of wide-eyed Apple is about that market, right? They right. they they want that thirty percent for the long term, and they they probably think they can even have the Kindle app on the device without and, it hurting. 
it won't hurt because the yeah the, the tendency will just be to go for the oh they'll find some way to hamper the Kindle app that their app doesn't have like multitasking in some way. <laughs> right. Well, that's surprising. I mean, it's just the same way they do with the music, right? Like you can use other music sources on an iPhone, but because they don't have multitasking, you can't listen to you can't listen to those music sources while you're playing Doodle Jump. Right. That's a good point. But it, it is weird because it's like them allowing another App Store app to be loaded on the iPhone, right? right? Where you would then buy, which, I mean, they just can't really allow that. So the whole Kindle situation is just interesting to me because it's, it, it, it's a competitor and also just this weird business dynamic of, of what's going to happen. So, Joel, let me get your impression. So what was your sure. impression of iPad? Um, iPad. Well, I'll get one. I, I really do think of it as a Kindle competitor, and I like this display better. So... I think. I don't know. I haven't really sat and read it for a long time, but I do read on LCD screens all day long. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it, it's, just a, it's just a Kindle that's fast and it's got a better screen. And the, so many books that I try to read on a Kindle, the screen, first of all, everybody thinks the Kindle has a high resolution screen. I don't know why they think that. Look at the pictures. They're awful. It is blurry. <laughs> when you, I mean, when you look at pictures in a book, I mean, so if you're yeah. reading a book that is anything other than a novel, that you want to read from beginning to end. You can't flip backwards and forwards quickly. The tables are always absolutely mauled. The, 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 you know, whenever there's an illustration or, you know, even something as simple as like bullet points, they always get wrong on the Kindle. Yeah, because um, one of those things, it's like, it's like a geeky technology that yeah. I just never really, I think, worked the way it was supposed to. And I think people get, Maybe geeks not, get obsessed yeah. with the technology and sort of forget about all the things that are weird about it. Well, the trouble is, it's, it's even if it is, theoretically better on your eyes in some particular way. Uh, it's sort of like that television problem where people always buy the TV that looks brightest in Best Buy. Mm-hmm. Not the one that looks best, but the one that looks brightest because they're staring at a whole bunch of TV screens and not knowing how to compare them, they just pick the bright one. So every TV has its out-of-the-box settings adjusted to be super-duper bright, which isn't really what you want in your living room, but that's just the way they do it because otherwise they can't sell them in Best Buy. And I think e-ink is uh, is going to lose for the same reason. You know, when, when somebody looks at a Kindle uh, next to an iPad, the the, the iPad is just going to look faster and shinier. And I think it's probably going to display books better. It's certainly better for newspapers and magazines, which are not very good on Kindle. I mean, I'd almost rather read the New York Times on an iPhone than on a Kindle because um, it's just faster to move on to the next article and, and flip back and forth and – my, my wife and I, well, we both have iPhones and we love them. And I think the iPhone is a brilliant device. And my first reaction to the iPad was, okay, it's a little disappointing because it's just a giant iPhone. And then I was like, wait, that's awesome because I love it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I was yeah, like, if I love the iPhone, then why wouldn't I want a bigger version of it? I mean, this is, I think, such a smart strategy to scale. I was really worried about two things. One, the price, which I think they did pretty good on. And two, I was worried they were in a scaled down OS X, which I was like, this is just never going to work. But luckily, they scaled up iPhone, which right. is like, sort of the new paradigm. And I'm like, okay, that makes much, much more sense. And this, I, I was impressed. I, I, I don't know that I'll get the first version of it, but I, I would like to work with one. I, I think it's a very smart product. I think they're handling it well. My only reservation, a, yeah. well, I have one reservation, which is I just don't know about touch scaling to large screens that well. Like I'm, I'm a little, because I get tired like holding the iPhone, I guess because I'm physical weakling, which that goes without saying, but like I get tired holding the iPhone all the time. And doing <laughs> and I'm like trying it. to imagine like holding this larger thing and doing everything with touch. Although for, for browsing the web and the basic things that it's designed to do, I think it's gonna do very well. But the one part of the demo that I thought was just almost laughable was the whole I work. I'm like, I don't know yeah. who is gonna I work this way. With I mean, think about touching the screen every time you would like need to click or select. I mean, just selecting a URL. Which is like, I mean, how many times do I do that every day? Is painful. I mean, you get it done, but it's not like a fun, like enjoyable activity. I think I work is probably there because um, uh, 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 what I feel like this is for is, first of all, it's, it's your emergency computer to stick in your bag for the weekend trip where you don't really expect to do much, except that once in a while you're going to want to look up restaurant reviews, you know, for whatever town in Florida you're visiting. But the iPhone does that already for me. I sure. Okay. But this, so this is, a, this is a slightly larger screen version than that if it, if for those trips that you might have brought your laptop, but you don't really need to get work done. And then, but, um, and then but the, I still think it's too in between. That's the problem. That's yeah. what I'm kind of getting at. Is, is I still would want the laptop because the iPhone does, is almost too good. Yeah, you, still, you can still have a laptop. My theory is you know, I spend an hour or two every day sitting on the couch uh, either reading blogs or reading websites or watching Hulu 
or uh, just basically surfing, you know, basically absorbing content on the couch. And I'm right. doing that with um, uh, with either a MacBook Air or a little ThinkPad. And the the keyboard is almost unnecessary, and it's almost impossible to get that into kind of an ergonomic situation when you have a laptop. For example, if you want to every once in a while change position, lie down on your back and hold it above your head, uh, a laptop is just too heavy. I, I have a mental image of Joel holding a laptop over his Well, I'll, I'll do that with a paperback <laughs> book all the time or a Kindle. Right. Sure. Whereas right. with the with a laptop, I'm basically stuck in one position or two positions, depending oh, yeah. on whether it needs to be charged. So when I think about that hour or two a day, that's a perfect hour or two to be using an iPad, uh, and I'm going to get it for that exact purpose. Right. You're talking about workflows where your like your 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 input is like five percent of the time. Or right. Something. It's just it's just clicking on links. And maybe once in a while, you know, re- responding to an email that needs to be responded to right away. And then I think the reason that iWork is there actually is uh, is just so that if you get a word processor document email to you and you want to, you know, make a couple of changes to it, that, you know, there's there's something there. There's a way to do that. Also, it sort of reveals, you know, Jeff, probably what happened is during beta testing, uh, maybe before they decided to sign off on the external keyboard, they had people trying to use iWork and pages and stuff <laughs> with and just like, the touch keyboard <laughs> yeah they're like you know what let's be real uh if, if it, it is sort of an ideal compromise if you think of a like a writer somebody who doesn't need to be mousing around all the time uh it, 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 if it if it if it, you know they can pack an ipad and a keyboard and the dock in their suitcase um it's uh, it's arguably a better you know portable writer's experience than a, a laptop because the the uh, full size keyboard, right? I mean, you could you could always take a full size keyboard with your laptop, but um, I, I think that's that Steve Jobs secretly thinks that the appliance model is the way of the future, and that he doesn't he never really liked general purpose computers that you can crash. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's he'll concede to them, but that's just not he's just that's just not where his heart is. He's just oh, I think that's that. totally true, and I think it's exciting because I really do think they're going in a direction that may represent sort of the future of computing in some form. But I think people have pointed out this is like V.05. Remember well, it's going to be sandboxed for one. And right, there's going to be a certain type. Like if you want an app that makes all your folders um, look like, it makes your trash can have Oscar, Oscar <laughs> the, the grouch, and, and he comes out and sings, I love trash whenever you throw away something into the trash can. i got to deal with that, get, Joel. Where can you, I get that? Oh, come on. They've, they've had that since System 6. Uh, you haven't. You can't. Uh, you can't do that. You can never, ever, ever do that, because that is not the kind of computing experience that Steve Jobs thinks makes any sense. Plus, he doesn't care if that would be fun and that would be an amusing way to customize your computer, because it's going to make your computer crash. Well, here's what I, I agree. And did you read this great article by uh, Stephen F? I don't know what hey, we're Panic developer. Yeah, Stephen Frank. Yes, the, I was going to say Frank, but I wasn't sure if that's correct. So the, he, he, he likens sort of the old world of computing and the new world of computing. But I think what you have to bear in mind is we're still in like the 1986 era of the new, whatever this new thing is. It, it's going to look really primitive compared to the way it's going to be in 10 yeah. years. And he draws this whole long analogy, and I think he's right. What you're saying, like in the new world, apps are very sandboxed. So you can't, you can't right, change right. anything, but you can't really crash anything. And also it's safe to download software because the software can't really hurt you. It's sort of like the whole web model um mm-hmm. and the, and then the old world is you know the traditional os 10 windows 7 and do you guys remember the pathetic thing that was the the ol not the olpc the uh what was it called the microsoft origami that touch screen thing that, but that never came out well it did, did it? no it did actually come oh, really? out it did come out, but it was just everybody just kind of ignored it because they were like, "Okay, you're scaling. You're doing exactly the wrong thing. You're scaling the desktop down and just sort of retrofitting this experience on it." When you, what you really want to do, and I think what Apple does brilliantly, is bespoke that that type of development where you're building everything from scratch. You know, you're building it to support the experience. Like mm-hmm. they built their own CPU. Well, not not exactly its ARM, but but still, the point is they they integrated into the design. The battery, you know, is not removable. It's not serviceable. There's no ports on the thing. You can't put it in an SD card. There's no USB. <laughs> <laughs> but there so, is that there is that expansion port, and that's one of the exciting like the, the thing the thing that the keyboard plugs into. Uh, is that not like documented? Can you develop for that? Well, here's the thing: it's um it's documented for the i for the iPhone as of uh you know relatively recent release. They that's when they had their PR going off about how you're going to use these for like you know uh you know medical device screens and all this huh. stuff. So um so this is just. Uh, sorry to hijack your your thread there, Jeff, but uh, I wanted to to point out that 
one thing Apple does incredibly, incredibly well that like I'm personally jealous of is their patience and willingness to sort of put up with ridicule about things being too simple, right? Like the the fact that they lacked copy and paste for like two years on the on the iPhone. Well, they didn't have any choice but to put up with ridicule. I mean, what were they supposed to do? Lash out or cry publicly? no, No, no. What they could have done is they could have come out with a solution to it quickly and with their tail. Oh, that wasn't good enough, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they like waited until they could do something right. Exactly. And they're incredibly good at that, especially lately. And they just... Well, that's because they're extremely profitable. That's true. But they were... I think they became profitable over these past 10 years because they started getting that like into their DNA a little bit. They started saying like, you know what? It started probably with the the iMac and no floppy drive, right? We'll take the flack for that. We'll, we'll, We'll say it's simpler... We don't want to deal with floppy drives anymore. Uh, we're going to put our neck out there. And eventually, you know, as it turns out, that was a good gamble for them. They, you know, they kept some external floppy drive companies alive for a couple of years and then nobody used them anymore. Yeah, they so changed just, the video display adapter every, every new rev, uh, too. <laughs> it's frustrating, for sure. <laughs> but I really, I really do admire, okay, so Apple, when they went with the x86 chips, I mean, that was probably one of the smartest things Apple ever did. But I think now they're kind of even going deeper than that, where they're saying, we're going to build our own CPUs. You know, that you're well, going to go to the iPhone, going to go to the iPad. It's they're totally controlling. But, I, but still, they bought yeah, IP they rights bought the company. company. Right, I mean, right. they're fully integrating. I think one of the problems with the PC models, it's too genericized. You know, it's like, okay, we'll use these commodity parts to do these commodity things, and we'll just put like a wrapper over it. The vendors will just do the right thing. Don't forget, it's they, still, those things still cost about half as much as the... As, as Mac, I mean, PCs are still half the price of Macs. Well, right. And we're talking about future evolution. I mean, you, you brought up the example of copy and paste. That took them two, what, year and a half, two years to implement, which is fine because we're talking about the evolution of the device. It's going to get better and better. The iPad I don't think the is, trouble is they're never going to have a super mass market device if they don't get their price structure under control because they always want to be the luxury product, which is awesome. But, I mean, they're making these terrific BMWs, and everybody's well, going to still drive around in Hondas. But the iPhone is subsidized. Eh. The thing they need to do, I was talking with my wife about this the other day, where as iPhone users, it's always about when do you upgrade? Because upgrading with Apple becomes this very strategic game of figuring out what they're going to announce before mm-hmm. they do it. Yeah. And we realized that actually what they need to do is just the, the iPhone is so good, and the other phones are so pointless in my opinion, <laughs> that all they really need to do is just keep reducing the price. That's how they're going to become dominant. So I agree with you in that sense on the phone thing, but they can do that because it's subsidized. Um, and that might actually be part of the, the new world of computing as well, is this whole subsidization model where you're paying for this wireless access, so you pay a little bit less for the device. I mean, certainly cable But why can't Windows things be subsidized and have the same cost-benefit? Uh, they're too tied to this, you know, every vendor shall I, have the I, same The bottom model. line is that somebody wants a little laptop. Forget, forget mobile devices for the moment. But somebody wants a laptop, and they go to Best Buy, and there's a MacBook Air, whatever the lowest price MacBook there is, nine ninety nine, and there's a lot of three hundred dollar quote unquote laptops that are netbooks that are perfectly decent, you know, home email whatever. They're grotesque, but they're three hundred dollars. And and for most people, the difference between three hundred dollars and a thousand dollars does actually matter. Not for us because we're geeks and we love to spend money on electronics. Right. And so the, you know, this is where we put our priority. But for most people, it's just it's just hard to imagine Apple. But that's that's ever old giving world up stuff, on that. Though. I know, but I, I mean, don't, I think well. the future is mobile devices. The future is things like iPad, and theoretically, iPad competes with netbooks. I'm not entirely sure that's true. I mean, the netbooks but, eventually, the netbooks will take out the 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 the, the keyboard, and they'll have this awful experience with a scratchy, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like the the, the, uh, the, still, the five, touchpad. Five hundred bucks good. for Apple. I mean, granted, it's the entry level model. It doesn't have three G. All those caveats are grand. But I thought five hundred dollars was amazing. I, I had no idea. I was. I thought for sure it would start at like eight hundred minimum. Yeah. So and and you know Steve Jobs made a point, true or not, of saying, okay, we did. We tried they really, really hard. Are competing with Kindle. They had to. Yeah, they they did a good job on the price, and and I think they're doing a good job on iPhone price. Granted, it's subsidized, but again, that represents the new model of computing. So we are. I do think. It's true. Yeah. We are the last people to this game of analyzing the iPod. <laughs> well, I know, but to me, it's really, I, I became a little fascinated with it. And John Syracuse on Twitter was like, get a room. He's like, you keep talking about the iPad. But it's <laughs> fascinating to me because I really do think they're onto something here. I do think in yeah. some way this represents the future paradigm. This is like the original Mac. And I said before that I think the iPhone is more important than the original Mac. And I stand by that statement 100%. And I think that iPad 
represents the next phase of that evolution. So I think it's fat. It, we're viewing the future of computing in some way. I really believe that. You know, so, there's a scene in the, in the movie 2001 with a with an iPad. <laughs> really? Yeah. Have you seen that on the internet yet? No, I haven't seen that. All I saw was the stupid man TV parody. He's up in the guy. The guy's up in uh, space. The astronaut is up in space or whatever, and he's reading newspapers on this little iPad-like device. Cool. Nice. Well, now well, uh, I'm, let's I'm Oh, go ahead. Let's go to, well, since you brought up the floppy drive, so I think Flash is the iPad's floppy drive. And I know I talked a lot about that on Twitter, and I have very mixed feelings because I don't, I don't really like Adobe. <laughs> I, don't, I'm not, I have no great love for Flash. Right. But the, the dropping of Flash from the iPhone is totally defensible, in my opinion, because it's like a mobile device. It has all these restrictions. That's fine. But, you know, if you're going to sell the iPad as like this, you know, premium, no compromise web experience, then the lack of Flash starts to look more and more like... Oh, they're just doing that because they want developers to stop using Flash. Right. It's a political they statement, which is actually... Cool. You know, on Stack Overflow, we make a few political statements, too. Like, we want you to use OpenID, and some right. people really don't like that. And that's cool. I mean, I, I totally actually support that. And I admire the, the balls that Apple has to, to do that, too. Uh, they're probably in some other negotiation with Adobe right now, and they're trying to make a point. Like, behind the scenes, they're busy trying to get Adobe to do something the way they want them to do it. And Adobe is refusing, and they're playing these little games with Flash until Adobe... This has gone on for three years now. That's, yeah, that's a true. long game. Yeah, <laughs> it's also it's also more than just um, about the web because it's sort of uh, rep- I think it represents um, Apple's uh, you know observation that what Adobe and Microsoft are trying to do with Silverlight and with Flash is to offer an alternative to both the web and to the conventional desktop. Right. So uh, they're saying this is a new framework you can write write. To for sure. apps, yeah, and it cuts it cuts uh it cuts out the traditional not only the traditional Mac OS X application format, but it cuts out um, iPhone native stuff. You know, so if right. if uh, if they let it's kind of like I I agree it sort of takes balls. It's another situation where it's like Apple saying, you know what, we can wait this out. We can we can see if we were right or not. Um, but also it's just sort of like. They really don't want to give that any ground, and and this is why I think you see Apple sort of so strongly supporting things like, um, you know, modern uh, web design. You know, gen- generally speaking, what does Apple care if people are designing websites well for, uh, you know, modern conventions and, and using CSS and all this? It's it's sort of to keep, um, you know, Apple like endorse the Sprout Core framework. And why? Because it's an open source uh, framework that, that Adobe or Microsoft can't control. Uh, and Apple sort of seems to endorse like, you know, different ones of these open source platforms here and there. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. It's just anything to keep stuff like Flash that's controlled proprietary platform from being like the de facto web framework. Sort of like the way the App Store is becoming the de facto standard on their platform. I mean, this kind of disingenuous conversation. I mean, I think every corporation has their own goals. I mean, mm-hmm. are they going to port the App Store to Windows? Are they going to open source the app? I mean, they have a whole proprietary platform that they're building, which is fine. I think where, where I think it's weird is that it becomes a little bit of a customer hostile choice. I would argue that the floppy drive was already not useful at the time they dropped it. I think all the advanced PC people were like, floppy drives suck. Uh, so it was cool to see them support that. But I think Flash is still kind of useful on the web. Well, you and, know what they're uh, going to do? They're going to get in, – in, in, in two or three months, you won't see any more restaurant websites that are just a big old Flash thingy. And that's like and how can I argue with that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is why I'm torn. On the one hand, like I, I, I don't like Flash. I mean, who really likes Flash? I don't even think Flash developers really like Flash. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like as a customer, a guy browsing the web, it sucks. Because I go to a site, it just happens to have a Flash element. Maybe it's a useful Flash element. Maybe some little video. I can't control that website, and it's just going to kind of suck a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm I'm enduring the pain of this political choice, which is a little bit unfair. Um, but like I said, I'm torn. Yeah. I, I really support. I, I kind of tend to support Apple on this, but I don't know. It just undercuts their claim that hey, it's the real web in a way that the netbook is or whatever. That's all. So I had the same reaction when they announced that. Or that that there wasn't any flash on the iPhone because they were using the same kind of language. It's like you know, the the real web. Or it's a real browser. You know that's how they were differentiating the um, Safari on the iPhone compared from, to like Pocket Internet Explorer yeah, the, or the, Opera. The seriously ridiculous browsers on some platforms that did seem like yeah. a real a real browser. Uh, right. But you know I called I called that out myself uh, back then. I was like, come on, 
because I was I was kind of in the same. I, I think what it is is it's the same kind of like assumption that you keep everything that you used to have when you move forward. And I fell for that. I thought, come on, you can't just take away Flash. You can't just say that this integral thing that the web is is using no longer matters. But wait, but then, compared to, compared to the browsers we had. Mobile Safari was a revelation. Are you kidding me? Loss of Flash, I was like, who cares? I was like, this can actually render Stack Overflow. We have a jQuery dependency. I was like, I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, the loss of Flash to me on a mobile device is like acceptable. I mean, that's yeah. just well, I, I agree. And, collateral and so damage. Basically, what I'm saying is I agree with you, and I would actually qualify this as a, uh, a, a mobile device. And I've, I've come around now to be like it, 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 insanely unconcerned about the loss of Flash. And yeah, you know what? Bye-bye. That's my feeling. Did you guys see this? Um, <laughs> well, John? there is sort of an issue, which is that um, one, one, one way Flash is misused is uh, these big one-time static brochureware sites for restaurants and real estate agents and you know new condo developments in New York City. And it's done that way um, partially because of the poor brain capabilities of web developers in New York City. Wait, um, wait, Joel, there's one exception. If you have a store that sells blue Legos <laughs> it's and it's all in Flash, then it'll be fine. If right you blue Legos, yeah. you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> um, but the other reason it's that way is that when you don't know anything about the web and you're trying to sell a website to somebody who doesn't know anything about the web, you're going to go into a room and you're going to bring out the projector and you're going to show them a demo of their site. And Flash demos really well because it dances and makes music and stuff like that. And they're like, woohoo, that's what I want. And if you're showing somebody that doesn't know what the web is supposed to be like, that, it looks a lot better than a traditional website, which is fairly static. But anyway, that's enough Flash bashing. The other place people use it is where they just can't get a, a, a certain, you know, UI element that they need to get, maybe some kind of slider type thing that, I don't know, a chart, charts and graphs, animated charts and graphs, charts and graphs that you can drag and, and drag around on and mouse over and stuff like that, which there just isn't a real good alternative to Flash for that really yet. Um, there's SVG coming up, but I don't think IE supports it as far as I know. Well, that's what, it, that's what, you, what you've hit on there is it does sort of put... Uh designers in a position to, to support two branches of a uh, of browser. Right, right. And that is sort of a shame uh, in the sense that it's, you know, imposing this new workload on everybody out there. Right, which we kind of have to do anyway because the truth is a, a site like Stack Overflow really does need uh, a low-res, um, sorry, lo, uh, low screen, uh, small screen versions. You probably mm-hmm. do need to think about a small screen version of your site. Like Facebook, LinkedIn, they all have to have a different small screen version of the site anyway. Yeah, to, and, and yeah. The good news is, if you do, I mean, it, it, you're, you're having to support two things at once, but hopefully, you're doing it as sort of a stopgap measure. And it's it's true that you know, um, for instance, like you say that there's all these difficult things to do without Flash. So one of the things that Apple's doing with WebKit, obviously, is trying to support as many, um, you know, fancy whiz bang things as possible right in the in the web renderer. And so, for instance, if you say, okay. I'm going to use Flash unless I'm on an iPhone or an iPad. Then you have a, a lot more options available to you. You can take liberties with with the kinds of graphical capabilities you have, and so that, that sort of bifurcation is somewhat somewhat simplified. And if you if you consider not having you know it not having it need to be you don't need to not support Flash on IE, for instance, because I there's no threat in IE of Flash going away, right? So if right. you're like really stuck on Flash and you can't find a way to do something without Flash on IE or even in Mozilla, then you can sort of just stick with that. That works. But um, I, I think you're onto, what you're onto is important with needing to have like a small screen version. And if you're going to have a, a small screen version anyway, mm-hmm. you might as well be optimizing for um, you know, more and more of these, not, not just Apple, but like the Android phone. Uh, I imagine other phones, they're using these more standards compliant modern uh you know things like webkit uh so i don't know i think it's uh i think it's going to be good the one thing i thought was interesting was john gruber on daring fireball has been sort of you know in his usual sort of uh smug way and lovingly smug way has been discounting a lot of the um the the complaints about flash he he pointed to one of the um one of the like flash proponents had had posted some link of all the blue legos right and apparently that was a situation where they took the snapshot from a desktop machine 
And the reality of that situation, if you were to browse from, say, an iPhone or an iPad, is the vast majority of those sites had uh, Flash alternatives already, you know, implemented. Yeah. So it's like um, you know, people who are who are fighting for Flash right now. I think, to be honest, but I wait, think wait, 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 no, 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 that's disingenuous because the iPad is supposed to be a desktop experience. It's not a small screen. It's a full size screen, so it should be the same as the desktop experience. I think that's a completely legitimate complaint, actually. Well, well, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I rather I concede that's a reasonable way to look at it. But what I think is true is because the iPad shares so much in common with the iPhone as far as the web renderer, then um, you, more users than these people are making out actually will have a desktop-like experience because there are already these iPhone-specific uh, alternatives out there that will just, you know, all the web designers have to do now is like change whatever their user agent detector is or whatever to say, oh, yeah, this is iPad, basically treat it like, um, you know, iPhone. Oh. Well, Jeffrey Zeldman had an article pointing out that, okay, this makes people support fallbacks that make sense. Like, if you don't have Flash, do something else that's useful. Don't just have a blue Lego there. And I totally support that, but I, I, I have a hard time accepting the idea that a corporation, you know, even Google with its don't be evil. Like, I just don't trust corporations. I don't think Apple did this out of the goodness of its heart. Like, I don't think it's convenient to explain it as, oh, they want to push web standards. <laughs> but it's also more realistic to look at it like this would actually compete with the App Store. Yeah, they, just, me, don't want to, they just don't want anybody else to be able to make an App Store. Yeah, I don't, I yeah, mean, I don't, I, I'm not arguing I, that it's the good of their heart, but I don't think anything that they've really done is, I mean, most of what they're doing is to, you know, have a good time technologically and make a lot of money. So, we can still judge it as a good thing and we benefit from. Well, I'm torn because I do like companies that can say no. Like, I think Microsoft's problem, a lot of companies' problems, they can't say no. Like, if Microsoft was building a device, it has to do everything. And, of course, because it does everything, it's going to suck at all those things. And Apple has the balls to say, you know what? No, we're not going to do this. We're going to draw a line in the sand and say, no, no floppy drive, no flash, no extra ports on our glorious device. And, and I think that's great. I, th- I wish more companies would say no, would have restraint to look at their partners and basically say, screw you. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what they're doing. And I, but I think that's what's necessary to move things forward is you got to have, you can't have this compromised committee design experience all the time. It just doesn't really work. This from the ground up, we're going to build everything from scratch. We're going to control every part of the experience. I think kind of represents the future. And Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a lockdown future, but I think that's unavoidable. Uh, it's a trade-off that I think I'm willing to make. So it's basically thing. the brave new world as opposed to the 1984 future. Kind of. But, you know, I think it's a reasonable compromise. I think it moves everybody <laughs> forward. It moves the common person forward, which is the important thing. It doesn't really matter what us technical geeks want. It matters what is good for, you know, the larger corpus of people. But anyway, so that, that was a great discussion. Dude, I don't want to do all iPad <laughs> You had some listener questions, Joel. Oh, as, uh, sorry. Wait. Oh, yeah. Let's let's see if I can cue one of those up. Here we go. Um, boy, I don't have a good segue to them, though. Let's, That's okay. Uh, uh, we need more of a segue. And back in Stack Overflow land. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Stack Overflow. Wow, this is going to be a real shift. We're going from, from Mac break this week in Hello, quit. Joel and Jeff. My name is Jeffrey Weens, and I have been a developer for around four years. I'm currently in an applied mathematics graduate program because I needed something more challenging than what my previous jobs could offer. As a manager, how would you deal with programmers like me that are intellectually bored at work? And how do you balance this with your company's immediate needs, which may be intellectually unrewarding? Well, I think we already have an answer. It's called Stack Overflow. That's Stack correct. Overflow is actually powered by bored programmers. <laughs> this and has been pointed out to me on Meta. I was like, you know, I can't really argue with that. You're actually right. Bored programmers are the bread and butter of Stack Overflow. <laughs> They're the engine. Well, I want to say that there are no bored people. There are only boring people. And if you're I, bored at work, it's because you're a boring person. I, 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 don't, I, don't even, I don't even get that. If you're bored, you're working at the wrong level of abstraction somehow. Well, I kind of see what you're getting at, because I know in my previous corporate life, what I would do is sort of take on these projects that I thought would actually help the company, even though nobody was telling me to do it. I was like, you know what we need? We need X. And I would just go start doing X. You know, I would just finish. Well, but what else do you do when you're bored? Right. I mean, you're trying to build something that's helping the company, because, you know, you're there and you believe in the company company motto, whatever it is, the company song, you've learned it by heart. Uh, You're building things that help the company, but it's sort of off the, the record. (laughs) <laughs> um, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. I don't know if that's... I mean, where do you channel that? Well, that is kind of dangerous. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of programmers where 
they're just their day to day job is bored, so they work on tweaking, you know, the bug tracker or whatever. <laughs> there's some there's some internal process that's way more interesting to them, and they just make it better and better and better and better. And ultimately, you say that's uh, some internal thing that doesn't really matter. I mean, it it works fine. Can we do something? So, that, that so we this energy will basically dissipate. I mean, yeah. this really is the, the, the mission of Stack Overflow. It's to harness these tiny bits of energy and do something with them. That's exactly the goal. But on a corporate level, you don't want that energy going to Stack Overflow necessarily. You want it going to somehow internally some way to, yeah. So, but, well, like, what do you do if, I mean, granted, every, everything at Far everything Creek, Far Creek is, is interesting. Yeah. Totally interesting, and yeah. everybody loves working on it. Uh, but let's say in, in this alternate bizarro Far yeah. Creek, you have some boring things there. Not that, that you do. Somebody has to get them done. Yeah, somebody has to get them done. The bizarro Fog Creek. Yeah. Uh, what would you do? How would you? Well, that, that's almost the definition of a hard worker, right? Mm-hmm. Is somebody that will just plow through those boring periods. And all right, they're a little bit bored. You know, they're not getting as much mental stimulation from that. So their mental lobes are a little bit deteriorating. But, but not you're forever, implying that I there's hope. something at the end of that that's less boring. What if you had a long tunnel of just continuous boredom? <laughs> I, I really do feel like boredom is. Has says a lot more about your state of mind than about uh-huh. what it is that you're working on. I don't know if I, I have a better psychological explanation for that. So but, you're just telling him, but, but I mean, you're like, telling him to fix himself, like just become more interesting. <laughs> so how do how would one go about doing that? It's not becoming more more interesting to other people. It's that the fact that you're being bored is says a little bit about your attitude, I think, maybe what, what you're working on. Is wait, 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 wait. You told me, when, I, when we were talking uh, about citing code samples, you said yeah. most of the code I write is incredibly boring. And I actually took exception with that because I think even the simple code I write, to me, is interesting because it's just fun to write code. Yeah. So I'm I kind of t- there. But you told me the opposite. You're like, most of the code I write is not worth showing anybody because well, it's Well, that's so- because it's just some if statements and while, while statements and stuff. What I meant there is that the code that I write is just not... Uh, it's not like the individual lines of code are just not that exciting. Nobody can read it and say, wow, this is an amazing programmer. He got that if statement and that while statement nested, you know, with that. You wrote the hell out of that if loop. Yeah. Now, I mean, don't forget, the thing about programming is if you find yourself doing the same thing again and again and again, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. If you are bored because you have, every time you have to map a field from the database to a user interface element, it takes you 47 steps and you have to go into 18 different places and just do 47 boring things and you can barely keep up with the type, then you haven't programmed well. You're not programming well, Mm -hmm. right? Like the point about programming is that we have these unbelievably flexible toolkits and programming languages that we use, which allow us to automate every single friggin' thing in our environment. So if you... If you are using an, a development environment that requires you to take 27 steps every time you want to expose something from the database and the, as a user interface element, uh, it, that's a sign that you haven't finished building your toolkit or you haven't improved your toolkit yet. So go improve your toolkit, and then every time you need to expose something, it should only take about 13 seconds. You won't have to do that boring stuff anymore. But I, I think see. more than that, if you're not, if you're not, uh, you know, if you're not. Ugh, I just really feel like, given that, that I've, I've seen people get interested in the most boring things and get bored at the most interesting things, I really feel like it's more of a, a self a, Well, do you think maybe there's of, a there's an opportunity to exchange with someone else? Like maybe there's somebody else working in a similar area where you could sort of change hands? You yeah, know, one, but like you board, said, one man's board bored people, of they're another man's bored everywhere. They're going to be bored whatever they do. Well, not necessarily. What if you're told to do something? You have to work on X. Yeah. But you love working on Y. Joe's yeah. working on Y. He's uh, speaking of X. <laughs> All right, never mind. I was going to say, how's that careers job board integration project? It's <laughs> a, a, a little, little boring, or uh... <laughs> it's it's coming. All right, we have some other networking issues we're dealing with that are kind of a priority. Um, server. Okay, I got another question. I got I got a server fault question. Okay. Really Hi, this is Phil Buckley-Meller from the UK. I spend a fair amount of time on Serverfault because I enjoy trying to fix other users' problems. But recently Thanks. I've seen a major increase in new users not doing enough to allow us to help them. Their questions are badly formed, they don't provide even the most basic of details required, or they just haven't read the FAQ so their questions aren't appropriate. Essentially, the signal-to-noise ratio has dropped. What could or should be done to improve question quality by new users on Serverfault? Thank you. Is this even true? Here, I'm going to serve a fault. See if it's boring. Uh, it's 
Anything's possible. But I do want to point out we've done a few things uh, to the Ask page itself uh, oh. to make it simpler. Uh, number one, we removed some uh, extra text from the page. Um, we, we had a certain way that we did form styling in careers that we thought was more enlightened. Oh, and yeah, we've I tried to had move ask, that. How to format are like different, give you different sides. Yeah. So the help text actually, it, it, it sort of fades in. Does that do that on Stack Overflow too? Uh, yes, yeah. it fades in per field. So as you go to each field, there's only three fields on the ask form. I right. mean, it's a simple, simple form, right? right? It's like title, body, tags. That's pretty much it. Uh, we also moved some of the help text like into the field itself. So there's less extraneous text. You're, you're only seeing the text that you need to see at the time you're in that field. That's the sort of philosophy. You know, remove extra stuff. Nice. Remove needless words, omit needless words. Um, and we, we sort of the, the transition on the side was actually Jen. Jen's a designer. We work sometimes. He suggested we do that because it actually brings attention to that area versus just moving. immediately switching it, which he's like, I didn't even see it change. So the like, idea wow. is that by having a cleaner page, the text that is there will get, is more likely to get read. That's right. And this, this little subtle transition on the right, as you move from field to field, you see that the text fade in, sort of says, hey, look at me, I'm actually over here. We also added a larger, like an arrow-style bullet, so it's like more jumping out. I mean, these sound like very subtle tweaks, and honestly, a lot of stuff we do is very subtle tweaks to the system. Mm -hmm. We try to... It's kind of like balancing a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. If you'll notice the way Blizzard, Blizzard is like a genius at this, when they make adjustments, they make very small adjustments. They don't go in and say, you know what, we're going <laughs> to remove this class entirely. They'll make little tiny tweaks, and sometimes they go too far, but they always want to err on the side of making the tweak too small than too large. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these little changes that I'm talking about sound trivial, and maybe they are trivial, but considered in aggregate as a whole, we believe that they sort of nudge people into doing the right things. Specifically, on the ask form A, are you asking the right question? Do you know how to format your post? <laughs> um, and uh, maybe something we should add based on this call is like, here's some things you should think about um, you know, that we need to help you. Make sure that you've included details about your problem, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to get to a, an overwhelming amount of text, but now that the text is per field, there's less of it there. So we're actually free to include a little bit more help text than we did uh, on a per field basis. Mm -hmm. um, so things like that. And then on top of that, I would say uh, to the established users, uh, feel free to edit the questions, make them better. I mean, if they don't have what they need, if they're really bad, just close them, vote to close. Or flag them for moderator attention. I mean, we have several dimensions that you can attack this problem. Uh, editing being one of the primary ones. Assuming you have 2,000 reputation, you have the right to do that. Um, and then flagging for moderator attention in, in exceptional cases. Or if you just feel really strongly, it, it, this is such a bad question that we need to deal with it immediately, just flag it for moderator attention. And then vote to close, which takes five votes. But you can close the question as, you know, not a good question, basically. Right. This right. is so incomplete that it can't really be saved. Yeah. And then I would also say bring this up on meta. Bring it up on meta, cite specific examples of where you're seeing badness, and let us discuss it on meta. And sometimes the community comes up with better ideas than I do. I mean, a lot of the little tweaks that we put in are community suggestions. Let me give you another example that came up uh, yesterday was we've implemented this, this thing where if you have a 1,000 reputation, you can see the individual breakdown of upvotes and downvotes on a post. So if there's 50, the score is 50, it might be 75 upvotes and 25 downvotes. Well, if you click the actual score, it'll pop out, and it'll show you how many upvotes and downvotes there are. But people weren't understanding this because it just splits the number. It's almost like a cell dividing. Oh, <laughs> All of a sudden, you had, where there was one gray yeah. number, you had two gray numbers. And people were like, WTF, what is this? Like, they couldn't figure it out, even though the tooltip explains it. And I was like, how can you not figure this out? I was like, you click it, and it's upvotes and downvotes. It's like a fraction. It looks like a fraction. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we don't get it. <laughs> and they convinced me that I needed to do color coding, like green for upvote, red for downvote, and also show the uh, plus and minus. And it, I... I after I did that, somebody on Twitter, this is not a new feature. This has been in for like a month. Wait, where but on do Twitter, we see this? Uh, as long as you're logged in as you, Joel, oh, I be logged in. you just click the actual score. Okay. You have I to have a thousand you have to be a logged in user. But the minute I did this, somebody on Twitter is like, wow, you implemented this new vote feature. It's so cool. I'm like, this is not a new feature. This has been in for like a month. But he didn't see it until we made this little tweak of the colors and the plus and minus, which to me, again, sounds really trivial. I was like, this can't matter. Uh, but it did. So I guess the philosophy is we, we, we do try to make little tweaks that nudge people I'm into doing the right for thing. This feature. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I didn't know you could click on the... <laughs> well, it's a new feature. There's no way you would really know. It's really for advanced users. It's for people that would actually care about seeing the score breakdown, which right, I view right. as a little bit of information porn, frankly. But if people want it, they can see it. It's a little meta. 
A little. But hey, it was a very highly voted request. So we, we do try to satisfy the highly voted requests on Meta. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we'll keep an eye on that. But I, I would I would urge you to open it on Meta with examples if you really feel there's a the problem, and we'll we'll look at it. I don't. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, um, the the questions. It is true that garbage comes in, but we do a pretty good job of cleaning it out pretty quickly. We could also have more moderators. I think we're underrepresented on moderators. That's why we have a moderator election going hey, on. Do you so think it has to do with like time of day that like like Phil is in the UK, so he sees this stuff more because it's happening when we're asleep. There is a very strong cycle to Stack Overflow and Server Fault. Not to super user, but on the weekends and after business hours, yeah. however you define that, it does drop off tremendously. Sure. So that, that's possible as well. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Any other uh, um, business issues? No, business, I think I mentioned the, uh, the moderator election. You should have gotten an Oh, yeah, talk about that uh, because um, we haven't talked about that in the podcast yet. Uh, so periodically what we do on Stack Overflow is we like to elect moderators rather than us just randomly picking people. We let the community vote for the moderators that we want. Uh, one tweak we did this time. I'm voting um, for the Fonz. Did you vote yet, actually, Joel? No. You should have gotten the pop. Well, you might not because you're a moderator. But if you go to the blog, you can click through and actually cast your vote. Um, we're using the uh, STV single transferable vote system. One of the criticisms of the previous voting cycle was you could only cast one vote, which means it's become sort of a strategy game of like, who can I vote for that's actually going to win so that my vote matters? And then some, some people not from the U.S. were complaining, then you're just as bad as the American political system. <laughs> Where, you know, in the presidential election, I guess you feel like your vote's being thrown away. But, right. And also we have a lot of candidates. There's like 10 plus people wow. that could Yeah, look at all these people. I want to vote for, um, I want to vote for four. Uh, Stack Overflow is not exactly a democracy. Uh, I, I want to be clear about that. I mean, that's that's a little bit of an illusion. But we do believe very strongly in the community having input into most of the things that happen on the site. Um, and, and this is a manifestation of that, you know, that, that the community decides who would actually make a good moderator. Uh, I actually don't think that I make a very good moderator because I... <laughs> I get, I have a little bit of a temper sometimes. Let me just um, make a note of this. One yes. eight <laughs> episode 82. Two, okay. <laughs> uh, you want someone very level-headed to be a moderator. Um, that I don't think I do a great job of that at times. Uh, but I think that the people the community picked, I felt were excellent moderators. So in that sense, the, the voting process last time totally worked. We, we picked the, ta- the top two candidates, uh, Mark Gravel and, and Bill the Lizard, and they've been amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Very friendly, very personable, and very fair. So hopefully the community will make another good choice here. And single transferable vote means that when you cast your three votes, you can be pretty sure that at least one of those people has a pretty high chance of maybe becoming a moderator. So Nice. Okay. Yeah. You have been listening to episode 82 of the Stack Overflow slash server fault slash super user podcast with special guest uh, uh, Daniel Jockett. Daniel, thank you, thank you for being on. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, where where can people find you if they want to uh, um, read your Check blog? Check out your stuff. Listen to my, your podcast. Uh, yeah, you have a podcast. Is, yeah, I, have a, uh, I have a podcast at uh, Core Int. Like, uh, core Int, it's short for Core Intuition. And uh, coreint.org is our podcast. C-O-R-E-I-N-T.org. Okay. And uh, I've got a company, Red Sweater Software, which is the le- uh, word red dash sweater like you'd wear. Dot com. But with a dash, a dashing sweater. A dash, yeah. And a can dashing you believe sweater. It? Can you believe it? In 1999, I couldn't get red sweater. Well, wow. who has it now? A, same person. But, well, just uh, go buy it. Now you get the money. You're, you're the big, successful. Uh, this is some I, graphic designer. I know. I can't believe it. It's a painter, actually. But uh, wow. she, has, she seems to have migrated over to her own vanity domain mostly. So I hope one day she'll give it up. We'll see. <laughs> Anyway, not me, guys. Uh, without the dash is not me, even though it's uh, some, some nice work there. It's not mine. And your blog is at? Uh, it's at red-sweaters.com slash blog. Slash blog. And, oh, you wait, know, and your, your Twitters. you got to mention your Twitters. And on CB, oh, yeah. uh, CB Radio, your handle yeah. is? Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, Breaker Breaker Sweater Dog. <laughs> sweater um, Dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, uh, my, my Twitter ID is almost as... Uh, as uh, as weird as that, it's just Daniel Punk ass, all one word. <laughs> I just wanted you to say that. That's why. I mean. <laughs> okay. Yes. 
<laughs> Which is so it's did, cool. I mean, he has a fun Twitter stream. I, I enjoy it. So, uh, oh, if, if 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 any 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 of the rest of you have a question for the Stack Overflow podcast that you'd like us to play on a future podcast, email an MP3 or Ogwarvis file to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the podcast hotline 646-826-3879. There's a transcript wiki wherein people um, from around the world volunteer by jotting down some parts of the podcast, not not this one, the interesting parts, and uh, 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 typing out transcripts for the benefit of the hearing impaired. And that is linked to from the show notes, which is a page listing all the various things that we mentioned on the show and hyperlinks uh, to same located at blog.stackoflow.com. Uh, thanks again, Daniel. See you next week. Bye. Awesome. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Spolsky. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.